What's up guys? Welcome back to another episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical, where we talk all things training, nutrition, and mindset optimization, while making sure to not lose sight of the practical and applicable side of things. I'm your host, Jordan Lips, and I just wanted to say thank you for taking time out of your day to tune in. I appreciate you. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today, we're going to do a Q&A, and we're going to see how many of these questions I can get through from Instagram last week. Probably four to six, depending on how much I ramble. So let's jump into it. First question is, hey, I feel like you're very anti-cardio. I see a lot of your posts rank cardio low on the totem pole. What gives? Guys, cardio is awesome. Cardio is good for literally everything. You should be doing cardio, period, end of story. It's good for your blood pressure, blood sugar, blood lipids, your mental health. You should be doing cardio. And there's no ifs, ands, or buts. My position is that you should be doing cardio. Cardio is great. But everything in context, because if we're talking about fat loss and physique change, just like you said in the question, it's about where does cardio, intentional cardio, getting on the treadmill, doing a Peloton class, going for a run, where does it fall on the totem pole? Where does it fall on the hierarchy of importance? Where does it fall on the things that you should really be focused on? And the answer is for most people, it should fall below nutrition and weight training. Because cardio fundamentally in the in the scheme of fat loss is really a tool to induce a deficit. Now, again, fundamentally, you understand if you're trying to lose fat that you need a calorie deficit. Whether or not you even know what a calorie deficit is, on some level, you understand, you know, I need to eat a little less and I need to move a little bit more. And you could make a reasonable conclusion that, you know, moving more is what you want to do. You really want to move more. And that's great. But practically speaking, it's just going to be easier, more reliable, more sustainable, more practical to get most of your calorie deficit through nutrition. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do cardio. It just means that you should probably view it as a supplement, something that you're helping induce a calorie deficit with. And for example, you know, maybe your maintenance calories is 2000 and your goal is to be in a 500 calorie deficit. You could eat 2000 calories and burn an extra 500 calories per day through exercise. That would work totally fine. You could also just not burn any more calories through exercise and eat 500 calories less. Now, it's not either or. Of course, there's a gray area in the middle that's probably best for most people, but let's start with that binary. It's gonna be easier for you to eat 500 calories less. Think about all the movement you do in your day right now. And then think about getting about 10,000 more steps on top of the movement you already do. 10,000 steps kind of, you know, uh, roughly equates to 500 calories. Like adding an extra 500 calories of movement to what you're already doing. I'm not saying going for a run because if you already go for a run and your maintenance calories is 2,000, then we're already factoring that in. I'm talking about burning 500 extra calories on top of what you're already doing every single day. It's just gonna be way more practical to eat 500 calories less. Now, could you do 400 and 100 or 300 and 200? Of course. And I actually think that finding the proper blend of how much do I want to use nutrition, how much do I want to use movement to get into a deficit and sustain that deficit is, is totally personal. And I think if you really love cardio and you want to do more, then that's you're totally open to do that. I just think that where cardio, intentional cardio, falls on the hierarchy of importance for fat loss you know, in the fitness industry, in the IG sphere is is too high. You know, the, the knee-jerk reaction that I want to lose weight, I'm going to start doing more cardio. I wish the knee-jerk reaction were 
I want to lose weight. Let me dial in my nutrition and let me lift some weights because the body that you're probably after isn't a body that runs seven times a week. It's probably a body that manages nutrition and lifts weights so that you have muscle to reveal when you do lose fat. And somebody uses cardio as sort of a minimum effective tool or a minimum effective dose tool where you're using it just enough to make your fat loss move at the rate you want when you combine it with the deficit that you're inducing with nutrition. So cardio is awesome. It's great. It's good for literally everything. Every biomarker, every blood marker. It's good for your mental health. You should be doing cardio. But when it comes to fat loss and physique change, it shouldn't be the thing that you're using the most to get into a deficit. It's going to be more practical, more reliable, more sustainable to get most of your deficit through modifying your nutrition and then using cardio to supplement that to some degree. Now, really quickly, I'd be remiss if I didn't discuss the difference maybe between intentional cardio and movement. I think intentional cardio might be roughly classified as like doing a Peloton class or going for a run or hitting the treadmill. Um, and movement might just be getting more steps. And while I think that they are different, I am discussing this in the context of just utilizing the calories out portion versus the calories in portion to get into a deficit. And while we can discuss the difference in the utilization of intentional cardio versus maybe just getting more movement throughout the day, I think the idea that you should be getting more of your calorie deficit from your nutrition is one that I wish was uh, the more norm in the fitness industry. I wish we, I wish more people out there who were trying to lose weight said, okay, let me look towards my nutrition. I mean, if you were to try and burn 500 more calories per day through exercise, that would be a really big effort. It would be a really big mental and physical effort. Do you know how much mental and physical effort it takes to eat 500 more calories? Fucking none. I could have done it right now while I was talking, right? So there's just a disproportionate amount of effort that it takes to burn calories than it does to eat calories. And we can go into the reliability of, of actually tracking that. I mean, if you were to do a Peloton class, look at your Fitbit, said that it burned, you know, seven, eight, 900 calories, you might actually eat three, four, 500 more calories and think it's cool, I'm still in a deficit. When in reality, that seven, eight, 900 calorie burn on your Fitbit is realistically more like three, four, 500. And if you're taking that number at face value and then you know allowing that to modify your nutrition, and that's obviously something that I think the fitness industry is coming really down hard on. It's like, don't eat back your calories from exercise, but use movement as a supplement. You should be moving because it's good for your health. You should be moving because it's good for your mental health, your physical health. Get most of your nutrition, your most of your calorie deficit through nutrition. Use cardio more as a supplement and spend most of your physical energy on weight training because the body you want probably has more muscle. That toned, lean physique that you're looking for has more muscle. And if you spend all of your physical energy running really hard, not only are you not actually going to be able to have the energy to, to put forth in that resistance training session to build muscle, but you might just actually end up eating back those calories because shit, a three, three to 500 calorie Peloton class, like that's like three cookies, you know, that's like one slice of cake or something. So it's just disproportionately easier to focus on your nutrition than it is for you to get those calories burned to induce that deficit through cardio. I hope that made sense. I love cardio. You should be doing cardio. I do cardio. It's just where is it falling on a hierarchy of importance for you and your goals? And if your goal is to get better at cardio, right, to, to run a faster 5k, to, to, you know, beat a rowing time, like, then cardio jumps to the top of your list. But if your goal is to lose fat, get toned, get lean, then focus on your nutrition to induce most of your deficit, resistance train in a properly resistant, uh, programmed resistance training program, 
and then use cardio as a supplement to make sure everything's moving along and then also just for general health. Cool. Question number two, what is your favorite and least favorite muscle group to train? Ooh, I like this one. You know, it's ironic that, uh, you know, I just feel like this is a stereotypical guy, but I hate training biceps. I hate it. There's just, like, I understand it's a very simple motion. It's just like elbow flexion, right? And, and but I never feel it. I just never get a good mind-muscle connection. I've tried incline curls. I've tried barbell. I've tried dumbbell and, and hammer curls and cable curls. And at the end of the day, it just like all kind of gets tensed up and in my shoulders and my traps. And yeah, I know my biceps are growing. They get sore and they're bigger than they were a year ago. And I think I'm doing the, most things right. But it's just, you know, the exercises we like are typically going to be ones that we feel like we feel in the target muscle really well, like a really deep tension, a deep burn in the muscle. And I just never get that with biceps. I feel like Dudes love training arms, but every time I have to do biceps, like a great, I'm going to just fucking do a curl or I'm going to do a curl over there. I'm going to do a curl with this thing. It's just curls. And honestly, I've experimented with a ton of rep ranges and tempos and different exercises, but I just never really get a great mind muscle connection. And for me, that mind muscle connection gets me pumped up. You know, obviously that's, you know, pun intended. It gets muscle pumped up, but it also gets me mentally pumped up. I really enjoy doing an exercise and feeling it in that target muscle. For, for anybody who knows what I'm talking about, I know you get it. It's like, I love, you know, doing a squat and then in the middle of the squat or at the end of the squat being, like, oh my God, my quads are about to fall off because they're just so pumped and so worked. So yeah, hate training biceps. Don't really like it at all, but you know, do it anyway because arms. Um, favorite by far is going to be uh, back training, um, mostly rowing movements. So like horizontal pulling. So like a really deep barbell row, or honestly, my favorite is a chest assisted row where you can really get that like upper back, that thoracic flexion extension. Um, again, it's for the same reasons. I just get a really good mind muscle connection, a really deep stretch, really good squeeze, really good pump, really feel it in the target muscles. And um, for anybody who's listening and being like, dude, I hate back training because I never feel it. I just never feel it in my back. It's my forearms, my grip, my bicep hurts. I never get a back pump. Get some straps get a pair of VersaGrips. And uh, I'm sure we'll discuss when and when not to use them in another episode. But if you can't feel your back training, if you're doing rows and you're losing all that tension in your bicep, your forearm, you're doing pull-ups or pull-downs and you're like, ow, my shoulders, my biceps, and you're not actually getting a good lat, good mid upper back um, tension, mind-muscle connection, like get a pair of straps. It will change your life. And better than that is get a pair of VersaGrips You'll never go back. You'll be like, oh my dear God, I didn't even know I had muscles there. Cool. I wish I was sponsored by Versa Grips. I'm not, but they're fucking amazing. Get a pair. Question number three. I want to grow up my lower body more than my upper body. Can I train it more? So this is an interesting thing. It's like, it seems super intuitive. It's like, hey, like you want to grow your legs more than your upper body. Should you train your legs more than your upper body? Yeah. If someone was like, no, 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 you really, you have to train everything evenly. You'd be like, why? They're like, well, cause like, cause fucking what? Like I want to grow my legs. I should train my legs more. And I find this is very often like people feel like weird about having personal preferences. They're like, oh, I really want to grow my glutes or I really want to grow my shoulders. Like, fuck, your training program should reflect that. If you want to grow your legs more than your upper body, then your overall volume, your overall sets across the week should reflect that. If I look at your program and it's totally balanced across the board. And you're like, I really want to grow my glutes. I'm like, are you training your glutes more than other things? You're like, no. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about then? So I think for everybody out there who like, hey, you know, I really don't want to, I really don't want to grow my upper body that much more or 
I, or at the very least, I want to grow my lower body more than I want to grow my upper body. Your training program should reflect that. If you want to train, if you want your back to really grow, well, shit, we should be expending more energy on our back and maybe dialing back from other muscle groups. Now, I wouldn't say like, hey, I want to grow my legs, but I don't want to grow my arms at all. I wouldn't not train your upper body at all, or I wouldn't not train a muscle group at all. But I think you could really bring down the amount of volume that you put towards a certain exercise or a certain uh, like exercise pattern or muscle group really far down, further than you'd think. The amount of sets it takes to grow a muscle, the amount of work it takes to disrupt homeostasis and cause a, a hypertrophic of muscle growth adaptation or strength adaptation is pretty high. You have to really push yourself. You have to do a lot of sets. You got to take them close to failure. It's got to be tough. But for you to maintain the muscle that you have in a certain area, it takes disproportionately less work. You know, you might only need to do, I don't know, it's hard to make a generalization, but anywhere from like five to eight sets of a muscle group per week to maintain the muscle you have. That's very easy. Um, it's a very low amount of volume. It could, it could even be lower, maybe a little bit higher for other people. But the point is that you could throw a lot of your muscle groups or some of them, depending on if you have really specifically don't want to grow something, on what we'd call maintenance volume, where you're just kind of doing just enough work not to go backwards. And then you can put more emphasis. Imagine you had only a finite amount of sets that you could do per week. You know, you could do 60 sets per week total, every workout combined. Well, maybe you're only gonna spend 25% of them on muscle groups that you don't really care too much about and focus more on the ones you do wanna care about. At the end of the day, it's tough to give specific recommendations within a, a podcast here without more context, but your training program should reflect the muscle groups that you wanna grow the most. Last thing on this topic is that beginners who don't really have a lot of muscle anywhere, probably don't need to be worrying about this, probably just need to be training everything all at once. And then if you end up you know, having some sort of disproportion that you don't like, um, you can obviously start to change and modify your training to reflect that down the road. But m most beginners should really just focus on hitting everything uh, with enough sets and enough intensity. But if you're at a point where you're like, hey, I'm like disproportionately big on my lower body and or I'm disproportionately strong on my lower body and I like that and I want to grow it even more, like your training should reflect that. Like, Don't be afraid to speak up if you have a personal trainer or speak up if you have a coach and be like, hey, we're doing a lot of arm training. I don't really want to grow my arms. Like, I'd really rather focus on, you know, quads and glutes. Like, all right, great. Let's do more of that. It's not something where you need to be doing the exact same amount across every muscle group. Like, fuck no. We should be doing more of what you want to grow because doing more is going to be what grows it. Excellent. So question number four, how do I get my kids six and eight to eat healthier? I feel like I try everything. First of all, I'm not a parent. So all the parents listening out there, like just know that I have not been through this. Um, I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of, of parents who have kids and who have kind of, we've kind of worked through this question a little bit. And it comes down to a couple simple things. I'd say three things. First, the overarching, you know, feeling slash state of mind you should have is setting the, the right example. Right? If you are eating a certain way, if your kids are seeing you exercise, you're setting the standard for your family, right? You're setting the default. Hey, eating vegetables, um, you know, eating quote unquote healthy and exercising is part of what this family does. It's part of what you should do. You want it to be normal. A lot of times, you know, I've worked with also a lot of kids back in my personal training days. It was like the kids very often are just a product of the parents' habits. And I'm not saying that that is always how it works and that it's all the parents' fault, but 
quite often, you know, the apple doesn't far too fall from too far from the tree. And when uh, when I'll get a call from a parent and say, "Hey, my kid is overweight. I need you to help them," and I'm like, "Okay, like you need to come down and sit with me." And they're like, "Why?" I'm like, "Because you are going to have the biggest part to play in this." So setting the example, having your kids see that you're working out, see that you're doing what you say they should be doing, um, is the most important thing you can do. Like you cannot expect your kids to be doing something, especially at a young age, we're super impressionable to be doing something that you're just not doing. And even worse, if you're doing the opposite, you know, like if you're feeding your kids different stuff every night and you're like, Hey, finish your broccoli. And they're like, well, you're, where's, where's your broccoli? And you don't eat it. And you bring it to the kitchen. Like these little things add up. Like your kids are going to benefit from seeing you do those things. Uh, two other things I'll say. So set an example, have them see you doing that stuff. And the last two things I would say is watch, watch your words. Your words are powerful. You know, they stick with your kids. I've trained people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s that can still recall direct quotes from, the, you know, being, you know, under 10 years old of their parents saying, like, if you eat that, you'll be fat, or don't be fat, don't be the fat kid. Like, you know, that food is bad. You can only have that when you're good. Like, a lot of this shit stays with kids for a long time, and it kills me when I hear that because I know that, you know, the parent's not a bad person. The parent's not, you know, they're not trying to do this to their kid. They're just not being cognizant of their word choice. And, you know, again, it goes back to the same thing of their suit. The kids are very impressionable. And you using food as a reward and saying this food is good and this food is bad and you can only have this when you've been good kind of sets the stage for this binary thinking throughout life of like this food is good. I, I need to earn this food and I have to feel guilty about this food and this food is unhealthy. This food is healthy. And that binary state of mind, that binary thinking around nutrition can be a real problem for people. And if you're listening to this and you know that that's how you feel about nutrition, like you could probably attest that your relationship with food isn't where you want it to be. So watch your words. Try not to use good and bad. Try not to use food as a reward. And obviously that's my second point is try not to use food as a reward. Try and, and try and avoid this like good and bad food mentality. Try and avoid, you know, very finite consequential language of like, if you eat this, then this will happen. Like if you eat this, then you'll get fat. If you eat this, like watch your words. They're so powerful. They're powerful always. They're powerful with your self-talk. They're powerful with your, with your friends, but they're so powerful with your kids who are a goddamn sponge. And lastly, you know, in that same vein of watching your words, like, you know, take a more positive approach. Instead of a, the fear of the negative, I'd emphasize the positive. So it, instead of like, a, if you eat this, you'll be fat, maybe focus on the good stuff. Be like, hey, this is the kind of food that if you wanna be big and strong, you eat. Or if your kids are athletic, be like, hey, this is the kind of stuff that's gonna really fuel your performance. I know fuel your performance might not resonate with a six-year-old, but like big and strong, you know? Grow up to be big and strong. Like big and strong like your brother, your Uncle John. Like highlight the positive instead of always creating this fear and demonization around the negative. Really, if you want your kids to eat healthier, set the example, right? Have them see you do what you say you want them to do. Have them see you do it. Watch your words, emphasize the good, and try not using food as a reward. Again, I'm just gonna put a disclaimer here. I'm not a parent, and I, I can imagine that using food as a reward is a tactic that makes life a lot easier, and in the short term, it might quote unquote work, and I don't wanna make it sound like I know everything. I don't. Being a parent is hard as fuck, but just think for a second, what are the long-term ramifications of the strategies and the words that you're using? And if you wanna make that decision, go ahead, but just make sure that 
you understand like, hey, is this something that I want my kid to think for the rest of his life? Because that is what's on the line here. You saying, if you're good, we can get pizza, or if you're good, we can get dessert, and, or only if you're good, we can get dessert. Like, I know that it's probably a tempting tactic at the time, and it probably gets you in the short term what you want. But just think, is this something, is this a, a relationship with food, a mentality, a framework that I want my kid to have forever? And let that shape the words and the tools and the tactics and the strategies that you use. I hope that helps. I don't want to come off, come off as pretentious. I don't know everything. I'm not a parent. I'm sure it's hard, but that is kind of where I'm at right now with helping clients who are in that position. And the last question for today is, do protein requirements go up for the elderly? I want to help my grandpa make sure that he's still physically capable. Awesome. First of all, this is a great question. I love this question. Uh, it's actually a very mentally stimulating, uh, um, exciting uh, question, actually. First of all, like when we talk about elderly, there's like no set age here. Um, studies sometimes say elderly 70, sometimes it's 60, sometimes 65, sometimes 75. So we don't really know exactly what, we don't have like a universal cutoff for elderly, but let's just say after 50, and um, doesn't mean you are elderly, but in the context of this answer, um, we can kind of lump in the post 50 crew here. So in a previous Q&A, we talked about the amount of protein that you need to eat to fully stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So really quickly, what that means is like how much protein per meal do I need to eat to get the full anabolic effects of that protein, to build the muscle that I want to build, to fully utilize that protein for, or, or, or fully get the benefits of that protein in terms of muscle building. And for most people, for non-elderly, it's, it's in that 20 to 40 range, so 20 to 40 grams of high quality protein. For the elderly or the older we get, let's say, the more resistant we become to that anabolic stimulus. It's not that muscle protein breakdown goes up and muscle protein synthesis goes down. It's that we become just more resistant to that anabolic effect. So while we might say that for a healthy person in a non-elderly, that having four meals of 20 to 40 grams of protein would be superior to 80 grams of protein twice per day. Because having that full muscle protein synthetic response four times per day is better than two. But in the elderly, that 20 to 40 grams isn't going to yield a full muscle protein synthetic response. They're not gonna get the most out of it. So protein requirements across the day might not necessarily go, go up, they, they might. I would more so say that the emphasis on protein should go up, not necessarily the general recommendation of like, you know, whatever, like 1.6 grams per kg, maybe 0.7 grams per pound. I wouldn't necessarily say that that number needs to go up that much. I would more so say that the emphasis on protein needs to go up because you're fighting sarcopenia, right? You're fighting osteopenia, osteoporosis. We're fighting an increased rate of degradation of your muscle tissue and your bone density. And, you know, first of all, this is important throughout life and you shouldn't wait until you're, you know, in the, your post 60 state to start eating more protein, lifting weights so that you can fight this stuff. But let's say you are in that, in that position, what should you do? I would say that instead of thinking about it in terms of total protein across the day needs to go up, I would think of it in terms of protein within one meal needs to go up. And so instead of having four meals of 20 to 40, right? So that four meals of 20 to 40 versus two meals of 80 grams of protein, you know, you and I, maybe sub 50 years old, 20 to 40 grams four times per day is going to be better in terms of muscle building, you know, bone density, getting all those anabolic responses from the protein. It's going to be better than two times 80. But for somebody who's maybe 65, 70, 
the two times 80 is going to be better because it takes that much more protein to stimulate muscle protein synthesis to, to a full degree. So maybe don't think of it in terms of total protein needs to go up, but the emphasis on getting adequate protein should go up because of an increased rate of degradation, bone density, muscle, you know, muscle, sarcopenia, osteopenia, osteoporosis. So the emphasis should go up because it's more important because we're at a faster rate of degradation. And the per meal amount of protein should go up. So if you have a, a, a grandparent or a parent or you are this age, getting them to have you know one or two meals, even just one meal where they fully stimulate muscle protein synthesis, maybe they're having 40 to 70 grams of protein in that one meal, is more important than hyper-focusing on making sure they have you know adequate protein at every single meal. And yeah, that's great and all, but we see some complications in terms of the elderly getting enough protein in uh, just from a, a hunger perspective, a, a, a satiety uh, satiety perspective. So if if I were thinking about my grandparents, I would be, I would place a really big emphasis on having at least one meal per day where I'm hitting that threshold of like 50 or more grams of protein. That would be where my m mind shifts. It becomes ever, ever more important to hit that protein requirement across the day and protein in general becomes more important as we get older. But I would also, in like a subcategory, be really focused on having at least one meal per day where I'm hitting muscle protein synthesis, which is going to be higher, a higher amount of protein per meal than for a non-elderly person. So maybe in that like 50 to 75 range. So that's all the questions I have for you guys today. Thank you for stopping by. It's a little anchor man for you. And uh, I will see you guys in the next episode. Have a good week. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you enjoyed it, if you found value, do me a favor and take a screenshot of your phone and post it to your social media. If you do, tag me so I can say thanks. If you ever want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at Jordan Lips Fitness on Instagram, or you can email me, jordanlips at jordanlipsfitness.com, or check out the website, jordanlipsfitness.com. I'd love to chat. Have a great day.